This morning we're turning back into the book of First Peter. I actually ran into Shane Hollenbeck before the service and he said it was good to be back. I laughed. He missed Easter. So I know a number of you guys were traveling for Easter and then I'm just missing the two weeks before that. So it is good for me to be back. It's good to be back with you. Um, it's good to be back in the book of First Peter. We have been, as we've been walking through this book, we've been calling our series Living in Hope. And I think you'll see these themes continuing to play out, but what Peter does here is he addresses his letter to a group of people whom he calls the elect exiles. Now recognize, I've said that to you every week, and I've done so pretty intentionally because these themes keep coming to bear in this text, that Peter writes to us as a group of people who are going to be rejected by the world. Now we have to stop and lean into that for just a second, because if we're going to say the world is going to reject you, you have to get into why does the Bible say the world will reject you? Because it sure isn't because you're weird. And it sure isn't because you're different. And it sure isn't for a whole list of reasons why people like to say they're rejected. If you're on social media at all, you will find Christians to be amongst the most offendable people on the planet. And we act as if everything offends us. You know, if Starbucks stops putting Merry Christmas on their cups, we're offended. Guys, that's not rejection. We've got to lean into that a little bit. So if the world rejects you, as the Bible says it will, it's going to be because you stand up for Jesus Christ. You make Him your place. You put forth who He is, His agenda into the world, and that's why the world will reject you. That's what the Bible puts before you. That's what Peter writes to. He's writing to a group of people who are being turned away, they're being abused, they're losing their job, they're losing opportunities because of who Jesus Christ is. And as we lean into this book of 1 Peter, we lean into it recognizing in a time in our country and in our world where persecution, as it is, is going up against believers. And even so, though we know very little of it here in the United States, We'll start to see more and more as you are willing to cling to Jesus. So Peter writes to that. He calls you the elect exiles. Those whom the world would reject, but that God would choose. That God would pick, that God would call His own. So we're reminded that this world is not our home. And it's Jesus. Jesus is our home. We belong to Him. So as we walk into this book and Paul reconciles for us this idea of living in hope. And it shouldn't be a hard idea for us to grasp on this Sunday, coming off of an Easter weekend, when we've celebrated the fact that Jesus Christ overcame death, that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, that the tomb was empty, and that He was alive. And friends, He's still alive. We don't just preach the resurrection on Easter, we preach it every week because the living God we serve is alive and active and moving. And because He is, it testifies to us that He's still moving and He's still working. What that says to us is that there's no sin in our life that can't be overcome. There's no situation that He can't bear His light upon, that He can't bring truth to bear. And there's no circumstance that could be deemed hopeless because Jesus is alive and moving. Early in the book of 1 Peter, Peter writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God, 
according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter writes this, praise God that we have been born again. That we who've believed in the name of Jesus Christ, we who've given ourselves over to Christ, experienced a resurrection like Him, we've been giving a living hope. So He calls us to walk into it. This morning we're stepping into the second chapter of the book of 1 Peter. Page 1014 in a Red Pew Bible, if you don't have your own. It's an easy way to cheat. We'll put all the page numbers and so you can look really smart like you know your way around the Bible if that's foreign to you. But as you turn there, I want to go ahead and forecast for you a little bit of, a little bit of where we're headed this morning. Because if you've been following along our sermon titles or by podcast, our series have been called Our Hope, Our Joy, Our Grace, Our Holiness, Our Conduct, Our Love. And this morning we're leaning into a message we've called Our Calling. And if I'm going to call it Our Calling, we've got to step into it a little bit more. Because if I were to ask you, what is your calling, typically what people would respond back to that with is either some sense of a profession or an occupation, or they'd refute it a little bit. Most people tend to lean into the fact that pastors have callings and normal people don't. Uh, And i got to tell you that that's not true. In fact, the Bible would testify that all of us are equipped, all of us are gifted, and he wants to use all of our gifts for whatever he would desire us to do, and that however God has wired you, that's what he's pushing you towards. But that's not the sense of calling we want to lean into this morning. Because what we want to lean into this morning is what is the Bible calling us to do? And this is more universal than an occupation. What does the Bible call us to do? What does Peter call us to do? And what does ultimately Jesus call us to do in this text? And keeping in mind, writing to people who are being rejected by the world, being accepted by God, how do you walk into that reality? And Peter puts two things before this church. He calls them into the Word of God, and he calls them into the body of Christ. So that's how we're going to spend our time this morning. And so we want to lean into that. So let's look at 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Let me read it. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The ESV, our pew Bible, starts this way. It says, so... If you're carrying any other transa- translation, and I hate to be nerdy talking about translations, but most of them start with a therefore. This becomes helpful for us because the therefore stands as a transition from the first chapter to the second chapter, and it tells us that these words are going to be built upon everything that's come before it. As, as we've been walking through this book, we have put before you this idea that the indicative always precedes the imperative. Again, I try to look like a grammar nerd. i got to tell you, i got like C's in English in high school. Um, the indicative comes before the imperative. What the Bible testifies is who you are declares what you do, not the other way around. See, because if Christianity is about imperatives, if it's merely about doing, then we become moralists. And we can legitimately create a checklist 
that says, do these ten things and you'll be right before God. But that's in fact not what the Bible declares. The Bible says that the indicative comes before the imperative, that what the Bible says is true about you, which becomes true about you when you've claimed the name of Jesus Christ, when you've given yourself to salvation, you've claimed Jesus, then the Bible says these things are true about you. And the first chapter lays out all these indicatives, things that are true about you. So when he gets to the second chapter and he wants to call you to do some things, it's not a moral code. It's a picture of who you are in Christ. It becomes this picture of who you are informs what you do. And ultimately, it begins to transform our life to the life of Christ. The imperative in this verse, the calling here, shows up in verse 2. The imperative is to long for pure spiritual milk. That's our first calling that Peter would put before you. You want to survive as a believer in Jesus Christ in a world that's going to reject you? Long for pure spiritual milk. Desire the Word of God. Be fed by the Word of God. Be nourished by the Word of God. Friends, this is why we teach the Bible at Calvary. We open up the book and we work word for word through many of the books and chapters that are written here because we think it's the Word of God that feeds you, not the opinion of Ben. We think it's the Word of God that sustains us, not the opinion of a pastor. Peter writes, be nourished by the Word of God, long for it, just like a newborn baby would long for milk, you should long for the Word of God. And that that longing, that feeding, that nourishing will grow you up into salvation. We've got to be reminded that as Peter's talking about salvation, as he's wrote about it, he writes about it as a future event. There are these places in the Bible where there's an already and not yet. Where we are already saved and yet looking to be saved. Peter writes about salvation as the future event when we're taken home ultimately. He first reflected to that in 1 Peter 1.5. He said, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That it's going to be your longing for the Word. You're spending time in this Word that's going to grow you up in Jesus Christ. And friends, if I can be candid, the church is full of immature believers. Full of them. Because we heard a message sometime that told us to believe in Jesus Christ and didn't call us to anything else. We've missed this reality that many of us could still be newborn babies. It says that in the book of Hebrews. Many of you should be teachers by now. The answer is, we need to be spending more and more and more time reading and studying the Word of God. If you're going to feed on it, I want to give you this picture. If you feed on the Word of God as Peter's putting before us, I want to give you the picture of the dinner I made last night. For last night, I got really excited. My wife told me I could make anything. 
I like cooking. So I did what is something that is in my heart. I went to the store and I bought some really thick, inch deep pork chops. And, and I put them on a cast iron skillet and I got the cast iron skillet just smoking hot in the oven, put it on the grill and, and boy did it have a nice little crust on them. They were delicious and we cooked some cauliflower, we cooked some asparagus and we put it on on a plate and it was pretty. Now I want to ask you a question. What would it look like to feed on that plate? Because what it looks like is not looking at it going, oh that's nice, let's keep going. No, to feed on that plate would be to spend some time with a fork and a knife, enjoying every morsel, putting each bite slowly in your mouth, and enjoying it. And that's what it looks like to be nourished, to be fed by the Word of God, is not to just pick it up and go, oh, that's, that's pretty, that's helpful for somebody. Bless my heart. But to actually spend time digging into being fed by the Word of God so that it nourishes you. And this is what grows us up in Jesus Christ. This is what Peter calls us to. And you'll note quickly that we glossed over verse 1. So let's circle back to it. Verse 1 calls us to put away malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And if you study it, you'll find that this is actually a subordinate clause to the second verse. See, I'm trying to impress you again with nerdiness. But when he has a subordinate clause, this put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, you have to know that it's longing for the pure spiritual milk. It's longing for the word that does that. It's not just that you would sit down and make a list of your sins and try to start checking them off. But rather, you'd lean into the Word of God, you'd begin to feed off the Word of God, you begin to be able to nourish off the Word of God, and then in so doing, God, working in you, will transform your life and put away these sins. That God will put away malice in you, your desire for ill will towards others. That God would put away deceit in you, The desire you would have to make others think differently about you than you are. That God would put away your hypocrisy. This idea that what you say and what you do could be radically different. That God would put away your envy. That you would look at somebody else and want what they have and think it's better than what you have. And that you'd put away slander. That sin where we talk about other people behind them and we kill them with our words. And friends, what I want to put before you with these five sins that Peter lists that the Bible wants to put down in your life to move far away from you is that all five of these sins are community killers. They're all five things that push you away from the people of God and from His family. So as Peter's writing this to you, calling you into His Word... He's also calling you into the body of Christ so that you would remove the barriers. See, as many of you have walked into this room, I know this, this used to be me. We can walk into a gathering in a church or in a ministry or anywhere, look around and feel like deceit. Man, I'm the only one that doesn't have my act together. Man, I'm the only one that sticks out. All these people, 
They're doing well. They're living the good life. I can be deceived. And then I can become envious. Why don't I have what they had? Man, if I had what they had, this would be easy. Man, if, if my life looked like their life, man, I'd follow the Lord easy. And we can buy into all these sins and we don't realize how they kill community and how they drive us away from each other. That they're relational killers. What Peter calls for us here, as he calls us to have a healthy walk with the Lord, he calls us into His Word, but he also calls us into His body. He says you can't have a desire for awful things for other people. You can't desire to deceive them or pretend to be something you're not. You can't allow resentment into your heart for others and you can't act on it. The Word of God grows us up, but it also protects us. And God will use His Word to grow us up. And He'll use His Word to reveal the plans of the evil one because as you see these sins marked in your life, you'd notice that over 21 times in the New Testament, does Paul or the other writers call believers to pursue unity? Why? Because Satan wants to divide us. He wants to sift us like wheat. Both individually and corporately. And just like we've alluded to several times, if a lion's going to go after gazelle, he picks them apart. And the more that you can get picked off of the body of Christ, the more you can be convinced that you don't need the church, you just need Jesus, the more you wander off on your own, the more you make yourself an easy target. And the Bible makes that so clear. We need each other. We're called to each other. And this is why Peter continues. This is why this all wraps up into a single section. He says, as you come to Him, and this ties back, as you come to Him, this does not mean initially in salvation, what the grammar of this phrase suggests is that this would be a personal, habitual, ongoing approach. As you meet with Him regularly, as you meet with Him daily, a living stone, this is describing him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. As you meet with God, the Bible says he is a living stone. And as Peter puts it out for us, first he was a living hope, then he was the living word, and now he's a living stone. He is alive. Peter says he was rejected by men and chosen by God. And you see the themes played out over and over. And it's not just true about us. It was true about his son. So we are called to be like him. That we would be rejected by men, chosen by God. And so he continues. And you yourselves, in verse 5, like living stones, he builds on this metaphor that if Jesus is a living stone, that you are called to be like a living stone, that we're called to be like him. And in fact, the Bible declares that we are like him. And as living stones, Peter continues the metaphor, we are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Peter puts that before us, that we who would believe in Jesus Christ, that's it. That's the qualifier. There's nothing else. Now make that a big deal because you could think of yourselves as not deserving a lot of this. But what God would say is you who've believed in Jesus are being built up into a spiritual house. That God is doing something. And if you look at this metaphor, it becomes obvious that God is building something. You know, rocks by themselves are not impressive. I have a lot of them in my yard. Some of them I like, some of them I don't. Most of them need to be put in piles, but rocks by themselves are not impressive. Where rocks become incredible, however, is when you organize them. Because when you organize a set of rocks and you categorize them, you can actually build a world wonder. You'll find that to be true in the ancient world. Look at any of the ancient constructions. They're all rocks piled on top of one another. And that's the exact same thing that God is doing here when He calls us. He's taking a bunch of rocks and He's building us up together to become a spiritual house. And in this case, a church where Jesus is the cornerstone He is building us up together into a community. He's calling us to one another. That we would be a royal priesthood. And we'll come back to this term, but that we'd be a group of people who in the words of Paul in Romans 12.1, when Paul writes this, And I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. What Paul argues for in the book of Romans, and Peter declares here, is that in light of the fullness of the gospel, in light of the fact that you and I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul's words, in light of the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, Paul's words, that God in Jesus Christ would make Himself a sacrifice in our place, that He would give Himself up for us for our eternity, and that we would lead a lifestyle marked by worship. That's what Paul turns it to in Romans 12.1. That we'd leave a life of worship being marked by Jesus Christ. And as Peter continues to write in verses 6-8, through eight, what he does is he points repeatedly back to the Old Testament to foreshadow all of this. So it would be really clear that none of this is a new idea that who Jesus was and what He did and the fact that He was rejected, all of that foreshadowed foreshadowed in the Bible. In verse 6, he writes, quoting Isaiah 28, 16, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. The book of Isaiah forecasting Jesus forecasting the reality that Jesus Christ would be the cornerstone and that whoever would believe in Him would not be put to shame. And then he quotes Psalm 118.22. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then finally goes back to the book of Isaiah 
It says, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And the Old Testament foreshadows this picture that Christ would be rejected and that you would be rejected too. This brings me back to remember the words of Jesus spoken at the Last Supper. In John 13-17 through 17 is a picture of the Last Supper. Jesus training His disciples for the last time. And in John 15, 18-21, this is what Jesus says and says to us in this regard. It says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now you have to keep in mind when Jesus says that, he doesn't call us out of the world, he calls us into the world. It'd be easy for us to read that and think, well, that's going to be hard, that's going to be harsh, that's going to be terrible, that's going to be wicked. Let's escape, let's flee, let's isolate ourselves. And that's not what Jesus says at this point. He says, I sent you into the world. In fact, he says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, that we would go into a world that would reject us and we'd love them anyway. That we'd go into a world that would abuse us but we'd love them anyway. And it'd be our willingness to love them, and to love each other through the midst of that, would be the testimony that we are His disciples. Friends, as Jesus puts this before us, as Peter puts this before us, we have to live in this reality that this world is not our home. And Jesus was rejected. We will be rejected. So how do we survive it? How do we lean into it? And what Peter puts before us is these two challenges, these two callings, that we'd be called into the Word of God. Though outwardly we're being destroyed, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. We'd be called into the Word, that we'd be transformed by the Word of God. That He'd be at work in us. That He'd be building us up. And we're called into His body to be built up, to be encouraged, to be exhorted. Peter ends this way. And we could absolutely preach an entire preaching series on these next two verses. But Peter ends this way, and he does so purposefully, when he says, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now for a second, I want you to pause and look at those terms. Whether you look at them on the screen or look at them in your Bible, I want you to look at them for a minute and tell me what's what's in common with all those phrases. I'm actually asking you to look at them and tell me what's in common with all those phrases. Do you note that they're all plural? 
that there's whole sections of the Scripture that you cannot fulfill on your own. You can't do as an individual. See, Peter has the right here to say all kinds of things about you, and what he says about you is saying about us. He says, but you are a chosen race. That you were chosen. And you were chosen amongst a set of people who were chosen. He says that you are a royal priesthood. Which means that you are a royal priest amongst people who are royal priests. He says you are a holy nation. Which means God has declared you to be holy amongst a group of people who are holy. He said you are people for his own possession, which means God possesses you amongst a group of people that he possesses. Friends, what God is doing here is forecasting to you the necessity of community. You cannot do this on your own. He called us together and he did so purposefully. And then he gives us the beautiful purpose. That you, plural by the way, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you can personalize that and we should. That as individuals we are called absolutely to proclaim the excellencies of him. The Bible makes it pretty clear that we should all be participating in evangelism. Calls everyone to that. That's not, a, that's not an office. That we should all be proclaiming who He is. But what He says here is that you, plural, may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous lights is that we, as a group of people, in unity... Proclaim who He is. That we as a group of people, as we pursue unity, proclaim who it is, who He is. And do you know how we do that? We do that by forgiving people we shouldn't forgive. That the world might look at us and say, how do they get along with that guy? How do they put up with Him? And the answer, Jesus Christ. The world ought to look at the church and say, how does that group of people gather in one room? They're not alike at all. And the answer ought to be Jesus Christ. That's how we proclaim His excellencies. When a group of people are willing to get over themselves, to love one another, to put the others first, we testify to the world that He has called us out of the darkness into the marvelous light. And we do it not individually, we do it as a group. Because He's called us into His body. Peter says, once you were not a people, again a plural term, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And we can't miss the fact that even throughout this 9-10, through 10, Peter is picking Old Testament themes. He's using Old Testament words to describe us, to define us, and to put us together. That we are a group of people who have received mercy. 
that we are God's people and we declare Him together. You want to know, back in the first century, how the disciples, who by the way, most of whom were killed and martyred for what they believed, how they stayed together? The answer is they were called into God's Word and they were called into community. You want to know how you're going to be faithful in an increasingly hostile word to your faith? The answer is going to be that you're going to be called into God's word and you're going to be called into his people. That we will persevere. God's church will persevere. He's called us together. Friends, as we're walking through this book of 1 Peter He keeps coming back to these themes that will be rejected by the world and that will be accepted and chosen by Jesus Christ. And He calls us to live in hope. And that we, as we serve a living God who is alive and moving, as we live in hope, our calling to survive that is into His Word and into His body. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you alone are our great sustainer. It's your word that gives us the words of life. It's not the opinions of people. It's not a philosophy or a morality. It's your word that we depend on. God, your word is alive and active as you are alive and active as your spirit is moving in and through us, as we engage your word, Father, I pray as a church, you would call us to an ever-increasing devotion to your word. Father, that if there are people among us who don't open the book at all, that you'd call them to spend even a couple of brief moments a day. That there are people amongst us who'd even spend a couple of brief moments, that you'd call them to an increasing love of your word. Why? Not out of moral obligation, but because it feeds us. Because it gives us the words of life that we might live on. And God, may none of us believe the lie that we can do this on our own. When we think that, it's just pursuing a morality. But God, you've called us together. That both as individuals and as a group, we would testify to who you are to what you accomplished at the cross, and people would see that lived out in our lives as we love each other well. And Father, finally I pray that you'd preserve our unity. That you would work in us. You'd convict us of sin. That you'd move us far away from malice, from deceit, from hypocrisy, from slander. And Jesus, that by your word, you'd keep growing us up into mature disciples for Jesus Christ. God, we love you. We're so thankful for the completed work of your son at the cross. We're thankful for his resurrection. And we look forward to a day when you would take us home. God, we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.